So we're going into a new Soul of the Parsha class for Parashat Miketz. Also, this is Hanukkah, so happy Hanukkah for everyone. Today's topic is time management. We want to understand how to properly manage time. Previously, we spoke about transcending time. How do we connect to something eternal that's above the dimension of time, that's above time and space? Today, we want to travel in the opposite direction. We want to go down into the dimension of time and into the topic of time management. How do we manage time? How do we manage to have time being managed by us and not managing us? And how do we control time in a way that we feel that time isn't wasted, that every moment is indeed precious and used? And how do we connect these two levels of something being connected to something timeless and also being absolutely within time. And another big question we want to ask today is what is the connection between uh, time management, making full use, proper use of our time, and righteousness, our struggle to be as righteous as we can, to live righteously, to be in control of our lower, baser urges. Is there any connection between this and managing time properly and not wasting time? So that's the question that we want to uh, pose today. Now, very interestingly, of all the Torah portions, only two, there are 54 Torah portions, two, and only two, are named after time concepts. They have to do their name. The name of the portion actually has to do very directly with the dimension of time. The first parsha to have time in its title is the very first parsha. In the Torah, Bereshit, in the beginning, Genesis. The beginning of the beginning, Bereshit, is also the beginning of time. It means in the beginning of time, or in the creation of time, or something like this. And the second parsha that has to do with time is our parsha, Miketz. And Miketz means from the end, or ending with, or in the end. Miketz has to do with the end. It's not the end of all time. It's the end of the two-year incarceration that Yosef had to endure in the Egyptian prison. It was then, after two years in prison, that Pharaoh had his two famous dreams, and that brought about the release of Joseph. But it symbolizes something deeper, which is really the end of all time in a way, because if we have only these two parshat that have to do with time, and the first very clearly talks about the the beginning of all time, and the second one is this parsha has to do with the end. By the way, this is the 10th parsha. We are now 10 weeks into the reading the Torah this year. So it's 10, of course, is a very round, important number. The world is created by 10 utterances, and then later on the Torah is given with the 10 commandments, and the Egyptians are struck with the 10 plagues and all of this. So the, the, the fact that this is the 10th parsha, although it's the middle of the story of Yosef, and there are two more parashot to go before the end of Genesis. In a way, a circle is closed uh, in this parsha, which has which began in the first parsha. So, although it's just the end of the incarceration of Joseph, the sages, the rabbis, say that this end miketz symbolizes or alludes or predicts the end of all e- evil and negative things, the end of darkness. Ketz sam lachoshech. It's another verse from Job. 
קץ שם לחושך, is God puts an end to darkness. And that will be in the end of days, when all of the hidden, captivated light within the world is released and, and discovered, and the, all darkness will be banished from the world. So Joseph's coming out of prison is really a foreshadowing, or maybe a forelighting, of the future existence in which all of us, all of the light that's incarcerated, so to speak, in reality, will be released. So it, we, this is definitely a good time to wrap things up because we've spoken about the, our dealings with the dimension of time for several weeks now. We spoke about, we spoke about old age and we spoke about the, the body and the soul traveling in opposite directions if you, were in, if you were here during those classes. And we spoke about transcending time. And now is a good time to talk about coming into time. And why is it appropriate in the parsha that alludes to the end of time? Because the precise phrase is mi ketz, which means from the end. Right? It means vayhi mi ketz shnatayim yamim, from the end of Joseph's incarceration, now this parsha begins. And we can imagine that here we're moving from the end or the edge of time, that's beyond time, back into time. We can look at it uh, in this way. Also very beautifully connects to Chanukah. Chanukah is about finding a, a small, tiny vial of oil. And that vial of oil appears to have enough oil only for one day. One day is like a single instant of time. It symbolizes a day, symbolizes like a point, an instant in time. But in fact, the whole dimension of time, so to speak, comes out of this vial of oil. It expands and it covers eight days, which is a length of time. It's more than a week. And at, we're starting from something that's outside of time, but really it, it, time unfolds from that vial of oil. So, and we can experience this every evening as we're lighting the Hanukkah menorah, adding another candle each evening. Today we're lighting the fourth candle. I, here in Israel, we lighted it already. If you're in the United States, it'll be a few hours from now. So we're in the middle of Hanukkah and we have this experience of the light expanding. And this is really, in a way, us going into time, into the darkness of this world and trying to make good use of our time in this world, in this life. This life is dark compared to the life of the soul, but, but this is what we have to go through. The, the whole purpose of being created is coming, and, coming down into this dark world and adding more and more light that's coming from the source that's above time, but, but lighting it within time. Each day, adding a candle, adding another candle. Every day, we want to make it brighter than it was before. Now, we want to explore this topic through, as, all, as we're doing this year, this year we're focusing, if you haven't been here, then, then you should know, this year we're focusing on the first segment of each parsha, the first aliyah, the rishon, as it's called, the first aliyah. What's going on in the first aliyah of Miketz? In the first aliyah of Miketz, we're, we're described the two dreams that Pharaoh has. He has two dreams, one after the other, the same night. The first involves the seven healthy cows and then seven more cows that are unhealthy or very thin and they eat them up. And then 
he, he, he awakens and he goes back to sleep. And then he dreams about seven ears of um, grain that are very healthy and full. And again, similar pattern, uh, seven unhealthy, very thin-looking ears of grain pop up and swallow the previous ones, just as the cows, the unhealthy cows, swallow the healthy cows. And he's very, he wakes up, he's very startled, very agitated. He doesn't know what this means. He calls all of his magicians and the wise men of, of Egypt, and they, they don't know the proper solution. And then suddenly, the chief cupbearer, uh, who was mentioned in the previous parasha, because in the previous parasha, Yosef was in prison, he met two of Pharaoh's ministers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. They told him their dreams, and he, he foresaw, he explained, he interpreted the dreams and told them exactly what's going to happen to them. And, of course, the chief baker was, uh, was hung, he was killed, and the chief cupbearer was re he restored to his position. And the chief cupbearer promised Yosef that he will remind, he will tell Pharaoh about him, and he will try and do whatever is in his power to release him, but he forgot about it for two years. And now, suddenly, this chief cupbearer remembers that there was this Hebrew boy in the prison who knows how to interpret dreams, and he tells Pharaoh, and Pharaoh tells him, bring him here, and Yosef is rushed into the palace, he shaves, he changes his, his clothes to be to appear properly before the king, and that's the end of the first uh, segment, the first aliyah. So the main focus here is the two dreams of Pharaoh, and then the fact that nobody can interpret them, and he has to call upon uh, Joseph, Yosef, from the prison. However, those same dreams are repeated in the second segment as well, because then when Joseph comes, Pharaoh retells him, and again we go through the same two dreams. So there are several differences, but what's interesting for us is that, is that in this first portion, uh, we're, they also are mentioned the two dreams from the previous parsha of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. So in one segment, we have all four Egyptian dreams. Right, the story of Joseph. I think I mentioned this, that the Torah, all in all, has talks about ten dreams. If you go over the Torah, there are ten dreams in the Torah. They're all in Genesis. And the first one was early on. It was Avimelech's dream, a few parshas ago, back in the time of, of um, Abraham. But then the nine more dreams, the nine later dreams, are all read during Kislev. Because they're very close apart. It starts with the Jacob's ladder, and then there's uh, Laban has a dream, and then Jacob has another dream. And the, these are three dreams that have to do with the story of Jacob. And then the story of Joseph, it's six dreams. Six out of the ten dreams in Genesis, which are the ten dreams of, that we, the only dreams we have in the Torah. And out of the nine that are read in Kislev, the story of Joseph is, is made up into, out of, it's made, it's made up from three parts, and it's really three pairs of dreams, right? Six all in all. So Joseph has two dreams, prophetic dreams about him becoming king, which no one believes and takes a lot of time for them to be fulfilled. And then we have two more dreams by two separate people, by the cupbearer and the baker in prison, that was the, in the previous parsha also. 
And then in this parasha, we also have the, the two dreams of Pharaoh. Again, two dreams by one person. It's, a, it's symmetrical. It's also asymmetrical. The symmetry is that we have two dreams uh, by Yosef in the beginning. Same dreamer, two dreams. And in the end, we have two dreams by Pharaoh. Again, same dreamer, two dreams. In between, we have another two dreams that are by two separate people uh, dreaming at the same time and prophesying about the same period of time. Um, so it's symmetrical. It's also asymmetrical because the first two dreams are Yosef. Yosef is a Hebrew. He is part of the chosen people, the chosen group that are descended from Abraham. And, the, and the, then we have four Egyptian dreams. So that divides them in, in another way. And in an even another way, we can say that the first four dreams are in the previous parasha, and the last two dreams are in this parasha. So it's divided in many ways. It's symmetrical. Also, we, we can put, we can group the four last dreams in one group, being Egyptian dreams, and we can group the first four dreams as being in the previous parsha. But what's interesting is that in the beginning of this parsha, it's Pharaoh, his dreams, but the cupbearer remembers that he and his friend the baker also had two dreams. So all the Egyptians' dreams are all uh, mentioned here. And Yosef is the one to solve all of the Egyptian dreams. He's both a dreamer, his brothers call him Baal Chalomot, the owner or master of dreams, that he has a lot of dreams. He's also a very good interpreter of dreams. You have to be a little bit dreamy yourself in order to interpret other people's dreams. And that's what he's doing. So now what's interesting is we want to explore why Pharaoh's magicians are unable to solve his dreams and why Yosef is able to, to solve or to interpret properly the dreams. So let's read the verse that's, uh, that, we're, that's, that appears just after Pharaoh wakes up. So it says, next morning, his spirit was agitated. In Hebrew, it's vatipa'em rucho. Tipa'em means that his heart was beating, right? It's, here it says agitated, it means that his heart was 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 beating quickly. Um, and he sent for all the magicians of Egypt, Khartoumim, it's an Egyptian word that's in the Torah, and all of its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but none could interpret them for Pharaoh. So Rashi, main commentator, asks, why does it say for Pharaoh? It could have just said, but no one, but none could interpret them. No one could interpret the dreams. But the Torah adds a word, in Hebrew it's one word, adds a word, le paro, for Pharaoh. None could interpret them for Pharaoh. So Rashi says, and of course it's based on a, on a Midrash by, in Chazal, they had many interpretations. It's not that they couldn't interpret it. They had quite a few interpretations. And they thought they were very good. And other, other people around them also, also thought that those interpretations were, were very good. But Pharaoh, the dreamer himself, didn't like them. It didn't ring true to him. It didn't echo in his heart. His agitated spirit didn't have ease of spirit. That's the term Rashi uses. 
he uses the same word spirit. We're talking about that his spirit was agitated or his heart was thumping. But he, when he heard the interpretations, he knew that if he would hear the correct interpretation, it would set his heart at ease. But none of their interpretations set his heart at ease or his spirit at ease. What did they say? So the Midrash brings two options and Rashi brings one of them. They said, um, you're going to have seven girls, seven daughters. That's the seven healthy cows. Uh, but then you're going to lose all of them. They're all going to die. You're going to bury them. And he didn't like that one bit. Uh, and it didn't ring true. And then they told him, maybe you're going to conquer seven lands. Maybe that was more regarding the second one, the one about the ears of, of grain, which have to do with lands. You're going to conquer eight king, uh, so sorry, seven kingdoms, but then all these seven kingdoms are going to rebe re rebel, revolt against you. And he didn't like that either. And, and the question is, before we get to Yosef, why didn't they, why weren't they able to properly interpret the, the parashot, the, sorry, the dreams? So Rashi, just before telling us this, he interprets the, the term that's used in the Torah for the Egyptian magicians. Right? The term is Khartumim. It later appears many times because in the story of Moses and the Ten Plagues and the Exodus, the magicians are all over the place. They keep trying to emulate the, the divine miracles that Aaron and Moshe are doing and they're doing their best to help Pharaoh. But this is the first time they're mentioned, the Egyptian magicians. And Rashi says the word Khartoumim is a, what is called a portmanteau. It's a combination of two words. And he says, Nechalim betimei metim, which means they, they, they get excited, they get heated up, they get excited over the bones of the dead, meaning they would use, and this was an actual ancient ancient uh, custom, to try and foresee the future using the bones of the dead. If you you would throw some bones and you would see how they what order they would create, and you would try and divine the future out of ashes or out of bones or things that have to do, and it's, it's almost like doing a kind of seance. Of kind of communication with the dead. Really, what's going on here on a deeper level is that the magicians of Egypt are doing what's maybe the most characteristic thing about ancient Egyptian culture, which is they put in the center of everything the afterlife. The Egyptians, what's maybe the most famous thing about about it. Egyptian iconography and symbolism is that they're obsessed with death and with trying to conquer death, which is really trying to conquer time. Because they want to make sure that, that at least the pharaohs and everyone who's rich and important live forever. That's why they mummify the dead in order to preserve the body. That's why they build these incredible tombstones that are the pyramids in order to withstand time, as they indeed have withstood time. And 
that's why they bury alongside the king all of his property, his gold, and a boat to carry him into the underworld. And of course, also the servants, they would actually bury them alive with the pharaohs. So all this has to do with the concept that they're trying to win over death, which is really trying to conquer time and entropy and decay. And they sought to connect with the eternal afterlife. And not just, but it isn't the afterlife of a soul leaving the body. And then you let the body decay, or in other cultures you burn the body because you don't really care about the body. You see the body as a kind of prison, and you see the soul as escaping from this body. This was in India. This was also in Greek culture. But Egyptians didn't, not only did they not burn their corpses, but they didn't even regularly bury them. They would mummify them. They would try to do everything that's in their power to preserve the body that it would be the same as it was while it was alive. And also to have the property that belonged to that certain pharaoh go alongside with him into the grave or into the afterlife. And the idea that we have here behind all of these symbols is that what they is that really they believe this world is the only world there is. They, they weren't spiritual at all, because otherwise they would have made a distinction between the body and the soul. They didn't. They wanted to preserve the body, because they thought the body needs to be eternal. But they, but they didn't like the fact that we're all bound by the dimension of time, and therefore we're decaying. They did everything in their power. That's why the magicians, the magicians, according to this definition by Rashi, are trying to communicate with the bones, and they get excited by the bones. They get excited by thinking about uh, being the bone also is, as opposed to the flesh decays, but the bone remains. So the flesh uh, is a symbol of timeliness, of being within time and decaying, and the bone is a symbol of timelessness, something that's eternal, that's steady, that's not changing. And they got excited about the bones. The, this image is really symbolic of them being, being excited by trying to communicate with something that's eternal and completely above time. They really wanted this kind of, of connection. Of, of course, it also has to do with the kind of morbidity that also has to do with Egyptian uh, uh, symbolism. In a way, we can say that they tried to interpret the dreams from, this is a later term, Latin term used by philosophers, subspecie eternitatis, from the point of view of eternity. That was the mindset of the Egyptian magicians. They wanted to look at the world from the point of view of eternity and then try and discover the eternal meaning of the dream. However, what enables Yosef to decode all of the four Egyptian dreams is something very simple that all the Egyptian magicians don't have enough appreciation for, and that is the dimension of time. What Yosef does is that all the numbers that he sees in all the dreams, he immediately says they all refer to units of time. So first, it's the dream of the cupbearer, 
and he tells them the three vine branches that you dreamed about, they symbolize three days. And in three days, you're going to be released from prison and, and your position as, as cupbearer will be restored. And then the baker, he told him the three baskets that you dreamed about, they refer also to three days. And in, in three days, I'm sorry to tell you, you're going to be uh, executed. And then when we get to Pharaoh's dreams, he tells, he tells him the seven cows and the seven more cows. And same goes for the second dream of the seven ears of grass and the, 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 the other batch of seven ears of grass. They all allude to two groups of seven years. Seven years and then seven more years that will follow them. And so whether he's using the unit of, of a day or he's using the unit of a year, he's using the dimension of time. And that cracks open the riddle. That, and then, and then they all feel, all the Egyptians feel, now, now that, that was the meaning of the dream. When you, when you experience the dream, you know, you feel that you know what it means because it's really, it's about you. It has to do with you. But you don't know how to explain it yourself. You need someone to explain it like every good therapist explains to someone what's really going on within them. And when they hit the, the right chord, when they, when they strike a, a chord, then you know, your heart knows he's, he's telling the truth about me. So only when Joseph brings in the dimension of time do they, um, do they figure it out. Um, we, generally, we can say that every good um, interpretation adds a dimension, a dimension of depth, a dimension of breadth. To interpret something, you need to enter a new dimension. Even if you look at the Egyptian hieroglyphics, you see something very off with the dimensions. All the figures are shown in profile, right? They go in profile, and they're all they, there's, they never look at you straightforwardly. The the two-dimensional drawings. On the other hand, their eyes are looking forwards. It's not a profile eye. If you look at the eye, it's a front-looking eye in a sideways-looking head, and it's like they can't get their three dimensions right. And it's like they, they either look at you from the front or they look at you from the side, but they don't know how to, how to, um, to connect them. So you need to add, add a dimension. But here he's adding more than a spatial dimension. He's adding the time dimension. And note that Yosef's dreams are not about time. In Yosef's dreams, there are... Uh, these groups of, of um, um, also grain, shibolet, shibolim, alumot, I don't remember the English word, that they gather all these groups of, uh, of um, um, no, uh, uh, of, of grain, and, uh, and they put them together. It doesn't symbolize time, it symbolizes Joseph and his brothers. In the second dream, it's the stars and the sun and the moon. They also symbolize particular people. It's his brothers again and, and his mother and father. So, his, and, and, and the dreams take a long time to be fulfilled. All the Egyptians' dreams are about time, and he can tell immediately it's about time. And also, that time begins immediately. When the baker and the cupbearer dream about three days, it's starting that moment. 
And when Pharaoh dreams about the seven years, it's also starting that moment. So he, in a way, is coming from above time, but the Egyptians are within time. Their dreams are about time, but they're not aware of the preciousness and the value of the dimension of time um, that they that they live within. That all their dreams are about time and process and and being gradual and trying to see this life as a meaning. They they see this life as just something that that we want to freeze. We, when you want to freeze life, that's like the mummification. You're not living life in a way. You're not making use of of your time. You're just thinking how everything runs out. And you want to try and freeze it uh, as much as you can. So they need someone who's coming from outside of their country, outside of their civilization, who's really connected to something eternal, who's above time, and can show them the value and the power of, um, of being connected to time properly. Now, Yosef is called Yosef HaTzadik. Yosef, the righteous one. And a verse used to allude to him is Tzaddik Yesod Olam. The righteous man is the foundation of the world. And this alludes to one of the Kabbalistic Sefirot, one of the Kabbalistic emanations, which is the, 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 the one before last, the ninth Sefirah. It's called Yesod, or foundation in English. And Yosef is associated with this, uh, with this sefirah. What does this mean? So this sefirah is very much connected to time, but also to what righteousness is all about, which is controlling your, your base urges. The idea is the following. The idea is that Yesod, foundation, this sefirah is likened to a funnel. A funnel is when you have a lot of things that you want to bring into one place, but the funnel narrows down the channel of, of energy going down and concentrates it so that one element goes down at a time. It's a bit like an hourglass. An hourglass has a funnel in the center. You have all these grains of sand, but the, but the hourglass is built in a way that only one or very few can drop at each, inst- at each moment. So this funnel is a, a metaphor for Yosef. Yosef, his spiritual force or, or talent is to serve as a funnel for taking high lofty spiritual ideas and putting them in order one after the other one. He says, well, you have all these things, but don't look at it sub specia eternitatis from the point of view of eternity as timeless, as talking about seven daughters and then and then those seven daughters are dead or seven kingdoms. No, it's it's units of time. And the three branches, it, you experience it in your dream as simultaneous, just like Pharaoh thinks about the cows or, or the, the ears of, of, uh, of grain as simultaneous. It's not simultaneous, it's, it's one after the other. So it's within the dimension of time. And, and then he, by, by doing this, he 
forces them to start thinking, and all of us to start thinking, in terms of how do I order things? What's first? What's second? What's third? I want to start with this. You need to have a lot of inner calm in order to put your thoughts in order and then to be able to start at the beginning and then move from A to B to C to D. When everything you experience at once as contemporary, right, as opposed to uh, being, you know, subsequent or, or gradual, or there, there's a word, the opposite for contemporary, I don't remember this word now. Um, it, when, when, you, when it's all in your head at once, when you experience it all at once, it's very hard for you to put your thoughts in order and to say, well, I'm going to start, although it's all very, I experience all of the things I want to tell you, but they come out jumbled. Why do they come out jumbled? Why do I start in, in the middle or in the end? Because I'm impatient. And having patience is being able to choose the, the element, the detail that's, that would be best to start with. And then I can move from that to the other elements. In, in order to do this, I need to be able to have a lot of patience and self-control. And this has to do with the righteousness. Yosef is the character that was able to withstand the temptations of Egypt, both of the Egyptian culture as a whole, and in particular of Potiphar's wife that tried to seduce him in the previous parsha. That's the reason he ended up in jail, is because he didn't succumb to her temptations. But being able to have this temptress who's trying to tempt him into following his lower, baser urges, and him being able to transcend it and say, no, no, you're my wife's, you're my master's wife, and you're, you're not for me, and I need to find my own wife, and it'll take time. Later we know it's going to be her own daughter. But it also has to do with disting distinguishing between the generations and, 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 saying, and being able to postpone your, your uh, gratifications. By being able to postpone your gratification, you're ordering yourself within the dimension of time. If you want to do everything at once, or you have no clear sense of what should come first and what should come next, you're going to do the things that you need to put off, you're going to do them now, and the important things you're going to put off. And the only reason for this is that you haven't tried to transcend your own temptations and your own urges. You do what's uh, what's easy, what comes, what comes easy for you, what's expedient, and not what is truly important and, and necessary and urgent for you to do. So you postpone what's urgent and you bring forward, and you bring forward what is not urgent or even maybe not necessary at all. And so there is a deep, deep connection personified by Joseph between being in control of your own lower urges and desires and being and controlling your time, your day, your week, your month, your year, and decades into the future and, and 
oinol, uh, your life. There's a famous um, uh, illustration or, uh, or metaphor that's used uh, when people talk about time management. And you can look it up on YouTube. It has a lot of different variations. If you look up on YouTube, uh, just a combination of words, rocks, pebbles, and sand, you'll find it. So I'll tell, you, I'll tell this very briefly because I only heard about this today and it's very beautiful. It very, very much has to do with, with the character of Joseph. So um, it, it goes like this. A professor comes to his, uh, before his classroom and he takes a jar, a big you know, glass jar. And, and then he takes a few rocks and he puts the rocks until they get to the top of the jar and it's all full of rocks. And he tells them, is this jar full? And they all answer, yes, it's full. Then he takes a bowl of a lot of small pebbles and he pours them into the, into the jar. Of course, there are all these spaces between the rocks, so they get filled up with the, with the pebbles. And, and, and he asks them again, is this jar full? And they say, yeah, it's full. And then he takes another bowl of sand and he starts pouring the sand into the jar and it fills up the little tinier gaps that you had between the rocks and the pebbles. And again, of course, it's all full. But it then, then it tells them what would have happened if I would have done it in the reverse order. And he and then he illustrates that as well. He take he empties it all. He takes the jar. He puts the exact amount of sand he put before, and he takes up about let's say a fourth or a third even of the of the jar. And then he puts in all the pebbles, and they they're now they're on the top of the sand. And now he only has about a third, some, something between a, a half and a third of the jar left. And he starts putting the rocks. And of course, he's only able to put a third or a half of the rocks. And many of the rocks stay outside of the jar. And he says, think of it like this. The rocks are what really matters. The rocks are what's really valuable for you. You have to think what's a rock for you. But the rocks are the important stuff. The pebble that you have to have, that you need to have, these are the things that... And, and the pebbles are things that are less important. You also need them from time to time. And the sand is the, is the least important stuff. It's the stuff that's only nice for now, not for tomorrow. And it's, you know, it's a nice diversion, it's entertainment, it's something that, you know... It's a nice way to pass the time, but it isn't really substantial in any way. We can even say that the rocks allude to something more eternal, because sand are also rocks that have gradually broken up into sand, and means they've eroded, which means they don't withstand time. But the rocks have withstood time, because that's why they're still rocks. So the idea is that if you start... If you put first the things that are like sand, and only then do you remember the pebbles, the more important things, and only in the end do you remember the really important things, you're not going to get to the important things. But if you start with the important things, and you first you make sure you do them, and you fill up the jar of your week or month or lifetime with the important things, you'll have time for both the important things, the rocks and the pebbles and the sand. There's even room for the sand because sometimes we need some fillers. We need some things that are not so meaningful and they, they just, you know, they fill in the spaces. But start with the rocks. That's the, that's the idea. It's a very nice thing. You can, there are all kinds of 
videos that you know uh, display this or uh, or you know show you how this works. But you you got the idea. In in Judaism, it's usually it's very similar concepts are uh, related. For example, in the ethics of the fathers, uh, in 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 sayings such as make the, your Torah the main thing, the, the thing that's steady, and all the other things, earning money and, and going about your life, make them secondary. And in a way, we can say that the rocks in Judaism are the Torah, not just livelihood or career or family, that also. But the main thing would be the Torah. And also there's another term that's called, that says, Don't say, when I have time, then I will learn, because you may not have that time later on. So right now you have time, so study. Put in the important things, put in the rocks, then you'll have time. If you start with the sand, also in Hebrew, sand is chol. Chol is the same word that connotes the opposite of sanctity. It means something that's secular or profane, or the opposite of holy or sacred, right? That's chol, chulin. So the sand alludes to the the more profane things in life, things that aren't holy, that aren't important, things that are very, very mundane. And, and, uh, and the Torah alludes to the steadfast rock, something you can rely on and hang on to, and that would, that would be with you in the future also. So, the, and of course, what is the difference between putting the rocks before the sand? What differentiates the people who start with the sand who first they play on the computer and they uh, they watch some television and they and they watch some YouTube movie uh, you know videos and only then do they get to the importance of the pebbles and the rocks. What distinguishes these people uh, or us when we're in those moments uh, and the people who start with the rocks or us when we're when we know and we and we and we start with the important stuff? It's very simple. The only difference is. How much control do we have over focusing ourselves in what's important? It has to do with, with self-control. And this is what Yosef is all about. When he's tempted by Potiphar's wife, he says he, he, he puts in front of him his, his, his own soul, his own, his own goal, his set of priorities. And then he's able to climb, rise above the lower aspects of, of himself. We can even say, you know, in, in Hasidur, we talk about animal soul, intellectual soul, and divine soul. We can say that the sand is what the animal soul looks is looking for, all kinds of little nonsense. And then the pebbles are what the intellectual soul is looking for. And the rocks are what the divine soul is looking for. So if you start with your animal soul, you start with the sand, and then you don't have time, just like the ethics of the fathers warn us, don't postpone studying Torah for the time that in which you'll have time, because maybe you won't have time. So starting with the rocks is starting with your divine soul, starting with the sand is starting with your animal soul. Um, so this is an important, a very important thing about what Yosef is trying to teach Egypt. Let's go one step further into this idea. In the, in the first Kabbalistic book ever written, 
which is called Sefer Yetzirah, or in English, the Book of Formation. It's a very small cryptic book, but it really lays the, the foundations for all of the Kabbalistic concepts coming afterwards. It's the first time the Sefirot are described, although they're still unnamed, but the structure is described. And a lot of other basic concepts. And one of the basic concepts uh, that Sefer Yetzirah tells us about is that Sefer Yetzirah tells us that the world is made up of five dimensions. Five dimensions, not four, as, as anyone who knows even a tiny little bit of physics knows today. What are the five dimensions? So the four, the first four, we know. It's the three dimensions of time. And in the terminology of Sefer Yitzhah, this is called Olam, world. The three dimensions of up, down, north, south, east, west, uh, these are the, the six spatial directions that they make up the three spatial dimensions. So these dimensions are called together the dimensions of Olam, world. And then you have the time dimension, which is called Shana, right? It means year, but it also is the root of the verb to change. Change occurs over time. So Shana is really the dimension of time, going from past to the future. And then finally, so all this we know, but there's a fifth dimension. The fifth dimension is called the dimension of soul. The dimension of soul is a moral dimension. It can go from evil to good. If you're, if you morally descend, you're going down the dimension of soul. If you morally ascend, if you connect more and more to the true essence of your soul and really to God, then you are ascending on the dimension of soul. So modern physics acknowledges the first four dimensions. It doesn't acknowledge, maybe it's not supposed to acknowledge, the fifth dimension, the dimension of time. So in Hebrew it's called Olam Shana Nefesh. Olam, the three world, three dimensions of space. Shana, change, the three, the sorry, the dimension of time, and nefesh, soul or psyche, the dimension of soul. Um, now the the first two have to do with observable reality. That's why physics acknowledges them. The last one has to do with invisible, unobservable reality. That is a subjective dimension, subjective of, of soul. Now what's interesting here is that although we can group the first two in one, put them in one group, and put the dimension of soul in, in the other group, a better way would say is that we have, first we have to talk about the physical world that ex, that. A, that expands spatially on the outside of us. And on the opposite end, we have the dimension of soul, which is within us. And then the dimension of times becomes an intermediate dimension. What does it mean the time is intermediate between space and soul? Right? Soul is completely, is completely subjective. Space is completely objective. That's why it also took a long time for people to regard time as a dimension. It didn't... Thinking about space as dimensions goes all the way back to ancient Greece. 
But thinking about time as a dimension is much, much later. Why? Because it's not as observable in the same way as space. Space is very objective. The soul is absolutely subjective. Time is something in between. On the one hand, it can be described by physics. On the other hand, there's something about time which has to do with the subjective experience of living in the world. Right? So the idea is this, really. The idea is that the Egyptians are living both space and time. But it takes someone who's connected to the dimension of soul in order to get a good sense of the hidden dimension of time flowing through space. We can say that space is like, we can say that space and time are like female and male. Space is like a female, like a, like a round space, like a womb. Time is a one dimension, not three. It's like a line. It's a, a, a masculine metaphor or symbol. And time going into space is like time impregnating space and making it full of energy and life and uh, processes and growth and evolution and space expanding and each and every individual's growth. It's this connection. So in a way, Time is what enables the soul to experience space, and time is what enables space to experience the soul, to have a, a conscious being travel the world and understand the world in, in the middle between space, between space and, and the soul, or the psyche, you need time. And Yosef is able to get a good to get a sense, to feel how the dimension of time operates within space. And because the Egyptians, again, were all about running away from the world or trying to freeze the world. There's also something very beautiful in Hebrew. The word for world in Hebrew, olam, originally mean, meant eternity. So we can say that the Egyptians worship the word olam in both senses of the word. They worship only this world, they don't care about time, and they don't believe in the soul. Otherwise, they, they wouldn't try to, to mummify the dead, or to try and, and, and you know, uh, conquer death. Because they, 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 would, they would believe in an in a eternal soul. They only believe in the world, and they try to make the world itself eternal. Hebrew, it's the same word, olam, eternity and the world. They're trying to, to make the world into something completely eternal. But Yosef is able to elevate them, and to make them feel that the world is just like a, a scenery, it's just like a, a vessel for the dimension of time to travel through, and that impregnates or brings meaning into 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 life into the world with when you're not connected to how do i make use of each and every moment you're not able to really go through life in a in a positive way you either completely succumb to the 
materiality of the world and to to having the world being everything about you or you try to freeze the world and make the world the physical world into heaven into the afterlife into the place in which everything is fulfilled and you'll always be disappointed because the the body and the world and physicality will never give you that sense of fulfillment that you're looking for that sense of fulfillment is found in the world to come in order to start thinking about this world and the world to come i need the dimension of time i need to seriously consider the dimension of time and move through time in a way that values the movement and the growth and the evolution and the processes of growth and learning and evolving and preparing for the future. By the way, the fact that uh, Joseph is, is teaching the Egyptians to save their food now so because they would need it in the future, he's actually teaching them the first lesson in righteousness. Postpone your instant gratification. Don't succumb to your instant gratification. Save for the future. Save the bread now, because later on you're going to need it. In, when, when there comes a rainy day, or in this, in this case, uh, seven years without any rain. But that's when we talk today, save it for a rainy day, right? It's, in, in this case, it's the opposite. But it's, the principle is the same. You're trying to, uh, to have a better control of the present in preparation for the future. That's being fully situated within time. If it was up to the Egyptian magicians, they would only they would never have realized that the seven cows or the seven ears of grain refer to time, and therefore they would not have saved their grain, and they would all have many of them they would have died in the seven years of of hunger. Now, final thing, uh, because it's getting late. Uh, I actually prepared much more than I'm able to teach today. Um, but one final thing, which is really beautiful. We said, Yosef, the, the thing that the, his interpretations all have in common is that they recruit the dimension of time in order to understand, to understand things that for the Egyptians were simultaneous. And, but when he interprets the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker, he uses the unit of one day. The three branches of vine and the three baskets of bread refer to three days. However, when he hears Pharaoh's dreams about the seven cows and the seven ears of grain, he says, in this case, it's seven years. Why, three, why days in the first case? And years in the second case, because it doesn't say in the dream that it's days or years or months or weeks or decades. There are all, all kinds of units of time. What made him realize, and he was right in all those cases, that for the two servants of Pharaoh, they dream in days, or they're able to foresee the future only in units of days, Whereas Pharaoh is able to, to, um, to foresee years into the future, really decades, because it's 14 years, it's almost a decade and a half. So we can bring several answers. So one answer is that there, it's a big difference between uh, being a minister and being the prime minister or the king. 
right? The the chief baker and the chief cupbearer in Hebrew they're called sarim ministers, and of course Pharaoh is king. So Yosef realizes something very simple. He realizes that if you're a minister, you're not thinking big. You're only thinking about your own personal fate, and you're thinking short-term. You're not thinking long-term, and you're not thinking about other people. So that's why he interpreted the three baskets and the three branches as referring to the three days into your own individual futures. You, the cupbearer, in three days, you will have success, and you, the baker, in three days, you're going to be executed. It's your own personal destiny because you care only about yourselves. He doesn't try to judge them, by the way. He doesn't try to tell them that they should change. He realizes that's their place in the hierarchy of the world. But he's able to realize how their psychology works. They're all prophets. It's very strange about all these stories that all these Egyptians are prophets. But their prophecies come through their own psyches. It's, it's also... Uh, it doesn't completely contradict the modern psychological way that we view dreams as coming from the subconscious. It's really a combination. It's something absolutely prophetic on the one hand. On the other hand, it goes through their own, um, you know, models or molds of thinking. And their mold is that they're thinking as individuals and they're thinking short term. However, however, when Yosef comes to Pharaoh, he realizes something else. This isn't just a minister. This is the king. A king doesn't only think about himself. He thinks about his kingdom. And he doesn't think short-term. He thinks long-term. So for him, he's, his dreams aren't just about himself. His dreams are about his kingdom. And as we're going to see it later on, it's not just about the kingdom. It's, it's even about beyond Egypt, because the the years of hunger also affect the land of Canaan, Israel. And that's what gets his brothers to Egypt. So he thinks in terms of his kingdom and even beyond, and he thinks long-term, he thinks in, in years. So that's, that's, that's another, another uh, so that's one, one answer we can give. There are more answers, but we don't have time. But we are just going to say one more thing. The numbers three and seven are extremely important in Kabbalah, in the esoteric level of the Torah. The ten sefirot that we mentioned before, Yosef embodies the ninth one, the ten sefirot are divided into the three higher sefirot, and also they're called the intellectual sefirot, they correspond to the head, and the lower seven sefirot are the emotive, emotional, behavioral they correspond to the to the more emotive powers of the of the psyche, and and so they're lower, and they correspond to the body itself. Now this is very strange. Three is the number that the ministers that are again short-sighted, very egoistic, are they have to do with the three higher sefirot, and Pharaoh, who's the king, who's isn't, who isn't egoistic, who thinks about the, the, the fate of his kingdom and is able to dream 14 years into the future at least, he has to do with the lower, the lower seven sefirot? Doesn't make sense. It appears that the ministers are above Pharaoh in some way. 
So this is one more lesson that Yosef is teaching the Egyptians, or God is teaching the Egyptians through Yosef. For the ministers, it's okay to just, you know, float somewhere up there in their private intellectual space. The it's called it says that the light of the higher three sefirot shines to itself. It doesn't shine outwardly. Just like my brain is inside my head, you can't see it. You can't read my thoughts. They're inside my head. The three intellectual sefirot are hidden. They're enclosed within themselves. So the three ministers appear to be on top, but in a negative way. They're on top in the sense that they are wrapped in themselves, just like when you're wrapped in your own head and you're not communicating with the world. And you're thinking only about your own future, what's going to happen a few days from now, and you're, you're very nervous about it. But Pharaoh, the king, the higher you grow, the more important you become, the more um, responsibility you have to lead people outside of you, the more you have to go down into the lower sefirot, the lower emanations, the lower levels of reality, and take responsibility. And then you have to start thinking in years, and you have to start, start taking responsibility for the outside world. The light of the lower seven sefirot doesn't shine to itself, it shines outwardly. It goes outside of you. So it appears to be the opposite, that the ministers are above Pharaoh, and in a way it is, but in, in the sense that we're really what we're being told is if you want to be a king, but where is the sphere of kingdom or kingship? It's the lowest sephirah. The highest one is called Ketel, crown. But when you carry a crown, when you have a crown on your head, it, it, it means you have to go all the way down to kingdom. And, that, and that's where your kingship is manifested. So the king goes below his ministers, and that's a good thing. And it's a good thing about all of us. That, and and it, it ties up everything together in a way we can say. That the more I grow over time, and I start with being a simple person, I become a minister, I become a prime minister of my own world, my own family, my own destiny. The more I grow, the, the, the more I should be going downwards and downwards into the, the temporality of this world and making the best use of the time that I can make by putting the important things first, by saving now for the future, by, by, by using my... my precious moments that I'm awake, that I'm lucid to do what's really important, which is first to study study Torah and put it in the center and then to do all the other things that I know of that are important. And, and it has to do with being fully situated in time and not trying, you know, transcend time or think that, oh, everything that happens here, it's just, it's transient, it's temporary, it doesn't really matter. I'm spiritual, I'm connected to something eternal, I'm above it. No, says Yosef to the Egyptians and to all of us. It's the very opposite. Our trajectory should be to go further and further into taking full responsibility as timely creatures, creatures that are in time. We have a precious window of opportunity that's called life. And every day and every year is very important. We can also say, 
final thought that a year is a unit of time that has to do with working outside as a king and doing things for the world. But a day is a unit for me personally to connect to my own soul and to God and to do my own inner work, short term. And of course, a year is made up of many, many days. But the idea is that I have to use my days in order to, to think and learn and grow and activate my head. And I have to use my year. And that enables me to, to think forward in terms of years and decades into the future as someone who acts into, in the world and trying to rectify the world, make the world a better place, work inside the world, advance the world, not just me, advance the world. And there's a constant rhythm of going to the upper three sefirot and thinking of what, what is my work today, what am I learning today, what am I understanding today, and so on. And at the same time, thinking long-term in terms of external reality and rectifying it and go for, going forward. So this is our class for Miket and for Hanukkah also.